0: when you're struggling or things are difficult or maybe you make a mistake or, you know, you look in the mirror, you don't like what you see. And just ask yourself really simply, would I say this to someone I really cared about, like a good friend or maybe my child? And if the answer is no, right, you can just say, well, what would I say to someone I cared about? And you can use that as the template for how to speak to yourself.
1: I'm Amy. And I'm Abby. Abby.
2: Today, we have an incredibly special treat for you. We have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Kristen Neff, Kristen is an absolute legend and pioneer in the field of self compassion. We've been wanting to interview her forever because we know that a lot of women struggle with giving themselves compassion. Kristen is a professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas at Austin, and she received her doctorate from the University of California at Berkeley. She is the author of the book Self Compassion The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself, of which I very much enjoyed. Kristen, please introduce yourself for our audience. And I would love to hear how you got started in the field of self-compassion. Oh, sure. Okay.
0: Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on. So yeah, so really my life's work is self-compassion. I've, I've been doing research on this topic for about 20 years and about the last 10 years, I've really been focused on how to teach people to be more self-compassionate. Um, but I certainly didn't come up with the idea I first learned about it about 25 years ago is when I was finishing up my PhD at University of California at Berkeley. And basically I was, I was a mess. I had just gotten out of a divorce and it was a really messy divorce. And I was also under a lot of stress about, you know not so much where I get my PhD, but what I get a job after spending six years of my life doing this thing. So I decided to learn mindfulness meditation to help deal with my stress. And fortunately for me, I went to a, a mindfulness group taught in the tradition of uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a, a Vietnamese Zen master, who talks a lot about the importance of self-compassion in addition to other compassion. You know, and I wasn't really expecting that. You know, I knew Buddhists were kind of into compassion and mindfulness, but I'd never really even considered that you could intentionally be kind, supportive, warm, compassionate to yourself when you're struggling. So, you know, I gave it a try. I was Again, I was feeling a lot of stress, a lot of kind of feelings of inadequacy. And I just started trying to be kinder to myself and, and, you know, reminding myself that everyone makes mistakes. It's only human to go through tough times. I show myself warmth and support. And I was just blown away by the immediate difference it made in my ability to cope. So then when I when I did get an actual job at University of Texas at Austin, um, I decided I wanted to research this idea and study
1: it, which is what I've been doing for about the past 20 years. So it's been, it's really been incredible. Well, and sometimes that research is really me-search of trying to figure out what do I need in this situation? Because I know that so many other women also need it. And we don't want it to be at that breaking point that we finally get the help. But sometimes it is. It's sometimes when we're at the bottom at the very, very lowest level that we finally figure out that we need the help and that we also understand that other people need the help. So thank you for putting that into the world because you are helping a lot of women. And when I was reading your blog, the very first sentence of the first blog post, it really stuck out to me, Kristen. It read, Having compassion for oneself is really no different than having compassion for others. First, To have compassion for others, you must notice that they are suffering. So why does it seem so much more natural for us to feel compassion for other people, but at the same time, we're being extra hard on ourselves?
0: Uh, Well, I think there are a couple reasons. Some are just cultural, right? We're raised, especially as women, to be self-sacrificing, to always be focused on the needs of others, helping others. And we aren't really told that self-compassion is a good thing, right? Actually, you know, can't you be too self-compassionate? Can't you, can't you like, a, isn't that selfish? And of course the research shows, no, right? You can't be too healthy. If, if it's if, if it's too self-compassionate, it's no longer compassion because you're actually harming yourself rather than helping yourself. And it's not selfish because the more, the more resources we give ourselves, the more we have available to give to others. But so some of these are cultural myths and the research has been really good for that because it really disproves all these myths about the dangers of self-compassion. They're all false. But there's also a more natural reason. There's actually a physiological reason, I believe. And that's because, you know, when we suffer or something, when we feel inadequate in some way, we feel threatened, personally threatened. When our friend you know suffers or you know fails in some way we don't feel so threatened so we tend to use two different systems with our friends we use the care response which has evolved to help you know help groups and 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 offspring survive tend and befriend we naturally help those we care about but when we suffer we especially if we fail or make a mistake we go into threat defense mode fight fight or flee or freeze and so we fight ourselves with self-criticism thinking somehow you know we'll, we'll Make ourselves, you know, get it right. We'll control ourselves. Um, that we'll, you know, beat ourselves into shape, so to speak. Or we flee into shame, like we flee from the perceived judgments of others. We hang our head in shame. Or we freeze and we get stuck. And again, this is a natural reaction, to threat. We don't want to beat ourselves up for beating ourselves up. We're just trying to feel safe. The problem is it's actually not very effective. so with self-compassion, we're doing a little hack. (laughs) We're using the system that really evolved to care for others, and we're using it on ourselves. And, you know, our subconscious doesn't really know the difference.
2: Well, yeah. And it's so interesting. So we really want to get into this and break it down for our listeners, because there are different components of self-compassion. The first one that you describe is self-compassion versus self-judgment. Could you explain this element of self-compassion and tell us if we're stuck in self-judgment, how can we slowly start to work our way out of that?
0: Yeah, yeah. So I I think you're probably referring to self-kindness. So the three elements of self-compassion are self-kindness, a sense of common humanity, and mindfulness. Each, Each has an important role to play. So the kindness is the warmth and understanding we give ourselves as opposed to harsh self-judgment, like coldness, you know, judgment, shame. And so uh, the reason it's so important is because well, let's say you make a mistake, right? If you shame yourself, if you if you beat yourself up, if you call yourself names, and how easy is, is it to learn from that mistake or to grow from that mistake, right? It's like imagine if you're a friend, you said, Oh, what a stupid loser you are when well, they messed up. Like, how helpful is that gonna be? So warmth, understanding, encouragement is actually um, much more effective. First of all, helping us learn from our mistakes and giving us, again, the, the emotional support we need to grow and do our best. So that that's a really huge difference. Um and again it it's so simple. If if it doesn't work for your friend, it's probably not going to work for yourself. It's a
1: really easy litmus test, you know. Well, and sometimes we like to complicate things as women. So I know I definitely do that quite a bit in the simple, easy fixes. You're like, "Oh wait, no, this has to be harder." So I like just how you broke it down and made it so simple. And then right. with with the next component of self-compassion, that's really that common humanity. Versus isolation. And I know that you state, Kristen, frustration at not having things exactly as we want is often accompanied by an irrational but pervasive sense of isolation, as if I were the only person suffering or making mistakes. All humans suffer, however. So, Kristen, explain this one and how people can start to work through this one.
0: Yeah, and and it's so important. This is really the wisdom element of self-compassion, but but it's also what differentiates self-compassion from self-pity right? Self-pity is self-focus, woes me, poor me. Um, Self-compassion, even though the word self is there, is actually not self-focus. It's just recognizing that part of being human means being imperfect, making mistakes, having difficult things happen. You know, no one, no human being has an absolutely perfect life. You know, some have it better than others for sure. But part of the definition of being human is, you know, we struggle, we get old, we get sick, we die right and so with self compassion we just we remember that it's not abnormal to make mistakes it's not abnormal to have challenges in our lives and yet we kind of it's an irrational process we think that somehow something has gone wrong if we're struggling if we made a mistake or again it is irrational it's not logical but it's as if Everyone else in the world must be living better than I am, must be having a normal, unproblematic life, and it's only me who's struggling. And that means something's wrong with me. And this is so damaging, because not only are we struggling, we feel all alone and isolated and abnormal in, in our struggles. So just remembering the connectedness of this, just remembering that this is part of being human. We aren't alone. There's nothing wrong with us for having difficulties. It really helps um, helps us feel supported and less isolated.
2: And I think that one is a huge one for our listeners because we've had therapists come on in the past and mothers are really good at doing that one to themselves. They look around and they're like, why is it so much easier for everyone else and so hard for me? And they don't see like the common experience that it is hard for everyone. They just can't see it.
0: Yeah. Well, and and things like Instagram don't help, right? Because people only usually put on the best pictures and like those good moments. And, And often we don't share those moments of shame or those moments of frustration or those moments of failure because, you know, we're embarrassed by them. And so that's why we need to give ourselves compassion because also, you know, we may not even want to share it with other people. There's no reason we have to, but at the very least, we want to remember for ourselves that we're just human beings doing the best we can, like every other human being on this planet. And it's, it's, it's not true that other people have got it. All right. There's no such thing as perfection in being a human. That's an oxymoron to be human means to be flawed and struggling and have challenges.
1: As we talk about self-compassion, we put ourselves through a lot as women. We put our bodies through a lot as well. We push them to the limit. We are mean to them at times. And one of our sponsors, Third Love they are true believers that everybody is worthy of comfort and that everybody is incredible and that it deserves respect. So that's why they definitely designed their underwear, their loungewear, their activewear, and then their bras that Amy and I both love to feel good all day, every day, and really just give yourself a huge hug while wearing them. Third love obsesses over every single stitch so that we, as people who wear them, never have to think about how something feels or how it looks or how it wears. And we know that while trends come and go, third love has always stayed true to one notion. And their biggest idea is that they're going to do comfort so that we can be ourselves. We've brought up the fitting room quiz before, but if you haven't taken it, just try it out. Figure out which bras pop up, which ones will suit you, your style, your lifestyle, and most importantly, fit you in the way that you want your bra to fit. So if you go to thirdlove.com slash herself, you're able to get 20% off your first order. Again, that's thirdlove.com slash herself for
2: 20% off. It all sounds so easy, but it's not simple to start to rewrite some of these scripts in your head and start to use more compassion. The final component of self-compassion is mindfulness versus over-identification. Yes. So the yes. quote on your website for this one said, Mindfulness is a non-judgmental, receptive mind state in which one observes thoughts and feelings as they are without trying to suppress or deny them. We cannot ignore our pain and feel compassion at the same time. Yes. Can you break this one down for us?
0: Yeah, it's very important. And actually, temporally, like when you're practicing self compassion, it comes first. And of those, we do need to be aware that we're struggling in order to give ourselves this warmth and remember that we aren't alone. Um, but often we aren't aware, or at least we aren't aware in a mindful way right? So sometimes we just suppress and we avoid, we just like soldier through and don't complain. <laughs> could you imagine if your friend called you up and said, Hey, I'm really upset. And you're like, Hey, I'm busy right now. I got to focus. You know, you couldn't give your friend compassion, but yet we do that with ourselves. It's like, we don't, we don't pause. We don't let it in because, well, because it's painful. We'd rather ignore it. Or we think we aren't supposed to, you know, that somehow it's wallowing in self-pity to acknowledge that we're struggling. So we can't give ourselves compassion if we don't acknowledge it, um, but, but we have to acknowledge it in a particular way, in a balanced way. So there's really perspective built into self-compassion because we're used to giving it to others to give ourselves compassion. We kind of have to step outside of ourselves and say, you know, hey, you're having a hard time. What can I do to help? So that means that we aren't lost in our struggles. Sometimes like we are wallowing, right? Sometimes we're just like, there's nothing we can think of except our own pain. We have no perspective on it. We might be exaggerating or catastrophizing or or maybe not. Maybe it is really bad, but, but if we're lost in it, we don't have the perspective needed to kind of get the bigger picture and say, what do you need right now? So mindfulness is the first step of compassion. And then we need to come in with a sense of connectedness and kindness to to really care for ourselves in that moment.
2: I think that this one also speaks to our audience because a lot of times what happens too is if your perception of how you think something is going to go doesn't line up with the reality, that is when we feel like, okay, we're not supposed to feel this way. So for example. If you bring your newborn home and you think it's going to be the happiest time of your life, yes. and you're feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm struggling so bad. I don't feel connected to this baby, whatever it is. Yeah, you yeah. automatically tell yourself, I'm not supposed to feel like this. I'm supposed to be so happy. I can't feel like this. And and that's when women really try to suppress those feelings down. But as we've talked about before, it's like that's when the feelings almost just rise up even more because you're not allowing yourself to welcome them, to be mindful of them, to like understand that you could be feeling two things at once. Right. Well, I, I know that one, you know, my son has autism.
0: And I remember um, the day he got diagnosed, I actually got diagnosed the day before I was set to go off on a meditation retreat. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when when I was on the retreat, you know, I saw this in first time. So so first is if you have a special needs kid, I mean, this is, he was five. at, the, at the, No, I think it was actually he was three at the time he got diagnosed. You know, this is the, the person you love most in the world. And I'm having these feelings like disappointment. Kind of like this isn't the plan I signed up for. All these feelings that you think you are not supposed to have about the person you love most in the world, you know. And I knew that I just had to. First of all, I had to let it all arise. You know, I didn't suppress anything. I, you know, I held it. I didn't like. I didn't run away with a dramatic storyline either. But I just let myself feel whatever I was feeling: the grief, the disappointment, you know, the kind of almost feelings of regret. If I'm totally honest, I, you know, again, I I. <laughs> I was a busy career woman. I didn't have time to have an autistic son, you know, all these, all these thoughts come up, but then in addition, so first of all, so the mindfulness came up and then, you know, the remembrance of common humanity, like, yeah, well, so, you know, autism, first of all, autism is getting more and more common, but everyone struggles with their children in one way or another, you know, um, yeah, against some more than others, but there could be other mental health challenges, other physical challenges, or, you know, people just have conflicts with their children. The, the parenthood is not about having a free ride with no, no challenges come up. And that helped me feel less isolated by the autism, you know, feeling like everyone else has it better. You know, no, I mean, some people have it, you know, they're really difficult. This is part of being a parent. It's not abnormal. It's not strange. But what really made all the difference was the kindness. You know, I would just put my hand on my heart. I was on retreat. I would just put my hand on my heart and just say, you know, I know this is really hard for you, Kristen. I'm here for you. We'll get through it. It's kind of weird talking to yourself this way, but you, you get used to it after a while. Like it's almost like your compassionate self talking to your suffering self. Um, And I just gave myself warmth and kindness and support. And I can't even, I don't even know how I would have gotten through it if I didn't know my self-compassion practice. You know, I probably would have, but it helped so much, especially like if he was having a bad tantrum or an episode or, you know, when things got really difficult and they did at times, my self-compassion practice was just like, it was always there. It was like this friend I had inside my head at any moment to help and support me through the difficult times. Um, And it was just, uh, I'm I'm so grateful for the practice. I still use it. He's 19. He's got a goatee, yeah. but he still struggles.
1: <laughs> oh, that entire story, Kristen. We were able to just chit-chat a little bit before the interview started, but our yes. third son was born with Down syndrome, and we found okay. out in the middle of a pandemic. So all of those thoughts that you just said on air right yes. there, I was like, I'm nodding wow. my head in, in tears right now because every yeah. single one of those are thoughts that go through our minds as... Yes. Special needs parents who are busy career women who don't have time or don't have the energy or don't have the research and education to take care of a child who has special yes. needs. Yes, um, and where you had the knowledge to and just the understanding to give yourself that self compassion, I didn't. And I remember in those first couple of weeks, I I would stare at a wall for like hours on end and just. It's being in it, but not really knowing how to move forward. Um, I wasn't yeah. able to talk to myself like I was suffering. I just sat with myself and didn't really know what to do. But the yeah. kindness does help. Like when you're beating yourself up about it, when you're trying to think of the things that you maybe did wrong, that doesn't move it forward. But yeah. when you can actually be kind, like I wish I had those words that you just said right there a year ago when we first got our diagnosis. So you're touching a yeah. lot of people with those.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I feel for you. You know, I've been there um, it's, it's, it's tough. Um, but I, I can tell you, I mean, really honestly, in those difficult moments, if you bring self compassion to yourself, so for instance, a second Roll would have a really big tantrum, I would put 95% of my energy on myself. You know, I'd make sure he was safe was harming himself or furniture or anything, but I would just like flood myself with compassion. I don't know what to do. This is so difficult. You know, I'm here for you. I, I would just give myself love and warmth and understanding and support. And that's actually what gave me the resources to help him. And, you know, the other thing it does is um, in relationships, whether it's with your, you know, your partner or your child, What you have going on inside, other people can pick up on it through their mirror neurons, right? Human brain is designed to feel the emotions of others. So when we're frustrated and angry at ourselves, we're bringing frustration and anger out into the world, you know. But if we're we're kind, we're warm, you know, we're caring toward ourselves, then that's also the energy we bring out into the world. So I would actually regulate my son's behavior through my own self-compassion practice. Uh, he would start to calm down when I flooded myself with self-compassion because he was picking up on my internal mind state. Whereas if I got more frustrated, he would like ramp up. But if I gave myself kindness, he would calm down. So it, it's for any parents, but especially for special needs parents who may have some, you know, the children may have some trouble regulating their own emotions. Self-compassion can make a huge difference. Well, I even
1: think about this with toddlers right now. I mean, yes. the exact same thing, but toddlers <laughs> yeah. have all those same. Like, what Absolutely. the heck are you doing? And we've had other guests on, and we know that the research shows we only have control over our own actions. But yes. what you have brought to the table today, Kristen, is if that first step is compassion and kindness, and if that's our first action towards ourselves, every part of it is going to go so much better. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And because, you know, we're fallible. We're human.
0: We're going to make mistakes mm-hmm. by definition. We don't have total control. We can try our best but we do not have total control. We didn't choose our genes or our circumstance or our mood. I mean, so many things that we aren't in control of. We like to say in the self-compassion world that the goal of practice is simply to be a compassionate mess, right? You don't have to get it right. You don't have to be perfect. You can still be a mess. I'm still a mess after 25 years of practice, guaranteed. But I am a compassionate mess. I've learned to give the mess compassion. And
1: that's enough. You know, it really helps. and makes such a big difference in your ability to cope and get through. Even that title just makes me smile. I like that one. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about your blog. We've, t- we've gone into your book. You've also been on a TED Talk stage, which was amazing. And in one of your lines, you said, we believe we need our self-criticism to motivate ourselves. We believe yeah. if we're too kind to ourselves, we'll be self-indulgent and lazy. But yeah. we know that research shows the exact opposite because when we criticize ourselves that's really when we're tapping into that reptilian brain. Um, some people call it the lower brain, the lizard brain, and just go yeah. into some more detail on this piece of it, because this is a belief that I know a lot of us do carry.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it's actually the number one block to self-compassion, the belief that we need to be hard, harsh, cold, you know, critical, crack the whip in order to motivate ourselves. Um, and it just undermines. Well, no, I have to admit it, it kind of does work. I mean, there's people who've gotten through law school or med school by self-criticism, but it works away at. you know, You know, an old coal-powered steam engine works. It gets you up the hill, but it spits out a lot of black smoke. And so with self-criticism, first of all, as you said, it it taps into the um, sympathetic nervous system reaction. So it raises cortisol levels, for instance. It increases inflammation in the body. It can lead to things like um, high blood pressure, heart problems. Uh, It also, like I said, it makes it harder to learn when you're in the stress, fight, flight, or freeze mode, it makes it harder to learn because you're so activated, you're so full of judgment and shame that it's hard to have the perspective needed to say, hmm, what went wrong? How might I, how might I try differently next time? You know, And it also creates a lot of anxiety. It's, it's linked to both anxiety and depression. And we know anxiety undermines our ability to perform at our best and depression demotivates us. So, you know, it's like it may work short term, but in the long term, it actually undermines our motivation. So sometimes people think self-compassion is like just going easy on yourself, being soft on yourself, giving yourself a break. It's only if that's what you need. Sometimes you do need to take a break, but sometimes you need a kick in the butt and say, Hey, you know, you can do this, but a kind one, like a good coach. I believe in you. What, how can I help? If we care about ourselves, just like if we care about our children, we aren't going to want them to be lazy and self indulgent. That's not caring. We're going to want to help them to reach their goals, do their best, succeed in life. But it comes from a place of care, not a place of, well, you're worthless unless you achieve. And that safety of knowing, Okay, the bottom line is, even if I fail, I'm still okay as a person. That actually gives you the ability to take risks, to take learning risks, to learn from your failure. And it also gives you the energy to keep going even when things get difficult. So it's a much more effective motivator than self-criticism.
2: Yeah, it sounds like self-criticism can be a slippery slope. And in that answer, I also found it, it's so interesting to me how physical we can manifest what our what our mental state is so how yes. your mental state so impacts your body and sometimes yeah. we just don't give that enough credit and vice versa yeah. right so instance, like putting your hand on your heart or giving
0: yourself a hug or holding your face I mean sometimes the best way to give ourselves compassion is just through physical touch maybe our brains can't go there you know, but our body gets the message because as babies, this is the primary way we, you know, parents communicate care is through touch. So when you change your body's body's physiology, especially when you activate parasympathetic response, you start to calm down, then your, your brain can follow. So it really does go both ways.
2: Right. In that same TED talk, you said self-compassion offers the same benefits of high self-esteem without the pitfalls. And There's a lot of self words we're talking about here. So if you could explain the difference between self-compassion and self-esteem and why it's actually more beneficial to work on our self-compassion.
0: All right. So self-compassion is simply, again, being compassionate, kind, understanding, warm, supportive with yourself. Self-esteem is a positive judgment or evaluation of worth. And typically, you know, it's high or it's low. So we know in the research that both self-compassion and self-esteem are linked to well-being so you know if you're high compared to low self-esteem you're going to be less depressed you're going to be less anxious you're going to be more functional in your life so it's healthy mentally healthy to have high self-esteem and and also self-compassion so the research shows they're both really beneficial and in fact they're kind of overlapping so self-compassion gives you high self-esteem but there are also a lot of unhealthy ways to get high self-esteem, right? It's not always good. It's not It's, not, it's great to have self-esteem, but how do you get it? So for instance, in, in American culture, at least, people need to feel special and above average to have high self-esteem. If I said, yeah, your podcast, yeah, it's average. You'd, you'd be crushed. We <laughs> say my work as an academic is average. I'd be upset. You know, self-esteem is predicated on being special and above average. Which is a logical impossibility for us all to be at the same time. So that's one of the problems from the get go. You know, it's the social comparison that's often built into high self esteem. You know, am I better than her? Am I, you know, am I more successful than he is? Whatever. And that, it can lead to nasty consequences. Like, for instance, we know the reason early adolescents start to bully other kids is to raise their self-esteem because they want to seem like the cool kid, you know, gets with picking on the nerdy kid. And of course, this can continue into adulthood and, you know, nations and all that, you know, that that really doesn't go away. Also, uh, what's uh, the problem with self-esteem is, um, You know, often, not always, some people have just like an unconditional sense of self-worth. And I would say self-compassion does give you that. But a lot of people, their self-esteem is contingent, right? It's contingent on either people liking you or it's contingent on how, how you look, feeling like you're attractive, or it's contingent on succeeding in those areas of life that are important to you. So it's like a fair weather friend, right? It's there for you when you succeed or when you, people like you or you look the way you want to look. But what happens when things don't go so well? You know, your self-esteem deserts you. And then, then you're like left, you're left rudderless. And so self-compassion, is like an unconditional sense of self-worth. It's not predicated on success. You don't have to be better than anyone else. You just have to be a flawed human being like everyone else. Well, I can do that, you know? (laughs) Um, So it's a more stable source of self-worth.
2: A quick break from our longtime sponsor, BetterHelp. We are talking all about self-compassion in this episode, and what we all know is depending on how we were raised, this might actually be really hard for you to find compassion for yourself. This is something that you could totally talk about with a trained professional who can help you take a dive into why finding compassion for yourself might be so hard. So you can go to betterhelp.com backslash herself to join the overwhelming 1 million people that are using their counseling service. Again, that's betterhelp, H E L P dot com backslash herself for 10% off your first month. It's interesting because when you answer some of these questions, my mind automatically draws a parallel to social media. And we mentioned Instagram earlier in this episode. Is it interesting for you as a researcher to see how things play out on Instagram? Because I think a lot of people are getting their self-esteem from others via these metrics of likes, followers, everything like that. And then... It feels like they're on such a roller coaster with how people are receiving them.
0: Yeah, no, it can it can be um, it can be really damaging. I mean, you know, personally, I do think social media is kind of neutral. There's good things about it, and there's not so good things about it. But certainly, one of the traps of it is well, first of all, this thing about the, the false images. Right, you know, like I have, a, I have a friend. She's in her 50s. She looks beautiful for fifty, but she puts a filter on, and you'd think she was twenty five. You know, a lot of people like they use these filters, so even the images you see aren't real. Um, people only talk about their good moments. You know, there's some exceptions, but people tend not to talk about their bad moments or post the bad pictures. And then this whole thing about metrics, you know, um, like how many people like me or if people like negatively comment on a post, you can feel bad. Um, so you have to be really careful with it, right? You have to really be aware and just say, you know, is this really where my self sense of self-worth comes from? You know, is this true? or not. Uh, of course the answer is no. my, my self-worth comes from being a human being like everyone else it's, it's intrinsic. It's like the, the moment we're born, that newborn child is valuable. And the, the, we don't say to that newborn child, okay, once you, once you pass the 50,000 mark on Instagram, then you're going to be worthy. You know? <laughs> it's like, no, from, from the moment of birth, we're, we're, we're worthy, of care and kindness, but we, we need to remind ourselves of it. And yeah. I think a lot of social media can, uh, trap us into the illusion of
1: thinking our worth is predicated on that type of success. Mm, Kristen, this interview is so interesting because we've all used these words. And sometimes I've used them even interchangeably. And it's not until you actually break it down of how self-esteem can be. It can be based on other people's perceptions. It can be based on a bad perception of you versus, I mean, it's just, there's so many, it's so, oh my God, I can't see right now. (laughs) I'm like, you're getting really excited here because there's just so many working components with this, but we're being compassionate. Like we all can win at that piece of it. Where self-esteem seems like you have to sometimes put somebody else down or somebody else has to be lower than you in order to be that above average as you were talking about. Everyone can be self-compassionate. And we can all win at that game.
0: Yeah, that's right. And and so, and then when we are, we we do have a sense of self worth. Like we want a sense of worth. We don't want to hate ourselves for sure. There's nothing wrong with self esteem. It's really just how how are you getting it? Is it healthy or unhealthy? And self compassion is kind of a healthy way to feel good
1: about yourself. Yeah, (laughs) I'm going to have some self compassion there for fumbling Um, (laughs) as I get really excited and, and just want to know more. Okay, Kristen, you have a book that just released, and it's called "Fierce Self Compassion: How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up." claim their power, and thrive. And we know that this is right up our audience's alley. It's right up our alley. So please explain what fierce self-compassion is and also why it's so needed.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited about it. So um, basically, the book is about, you might say, illuminating the two different sides of self-compassion, the tender and the fierce, with this particular focus on the fierce. So tender self-compassion is the soft, gentle, nurturing energy. It's all about self-acceptance you know it's okay to make mistakes we can love ourselves exactly as we are the prototypical metaphor might be like a mother you know just unconditionally loving their child it's warm it's soothing it's nurturing but that's not all self-compassion is again a lot of people are confused They think it's only that soft gentle energy there's also a fierce side of self-compassion and, and we can also use the mother metaphor for this i like to talk about fierce mama bear right imagine you know when someone's threatening your kids like you know you you, you watch out. A mother is not soft and gentle to someone who's threatening her kids, right? So that fierce protective energy, that's a really important part of self-compassion. And remember, compassion is like concerned with the alleviation of suffering. And so sometimes that means to accept ourselves, but sometimes it means, you know, protecting ourselves, saying no, drawing boundaries, also meeting our own needs. And the reason I wrote it for women right, in particular is, well, two things. For protection, women are like raised not to get upset, not to get angry, not to rock the boat. Well, that's just the way men are. You know, if you could look at the whole Me Too movement, I really see that as a rising up, of fierce mama bear compassion. Where It's like, no, it's not Okay. But women aren't raised that way. We're raised to just be tender and we aren't allowed to be fierce. Or, um, you know, if you look at providing for ourselves, well, the way the system is designed is women are supposed to meet everyone else's needs, but not their own. And that's why actually women have slightly lower levels of self-compassion than men, even though compassion is part of the traditional female gender role, because we aren't entitled to meet our own needs the way men are, right? Right. And so part of self-compassion means saying, no, I'm sorry, I I would love to help you, but I'm going to do this for myself because my needs are important too. And then finally, motivating change. Right. So even though we can accept ourselves as we are, we don't want to necessarily accept all our behaviors if they're harmful to ourselves or others. And we certainly don't want to accept all the situations we find ourselves in if they're harmful to ourselves or others. So taking action, you know, protecting, motivating, and meeting our own needs, this is the fierce, action-oriented side of compassion, kind of the powerful side of self-compassion. That's really important. And, And the reason it's written for women, you know, all people need both. It's like yin and yang. We need both energies and they need to be in balance. But the way they're in balance is different. Depending, depending on how you're raised, men—I mean—they're also harmed. They're they're cut off from their tender side. They're called names if they're too sensitive, which means they don't have the healing, nurturing power of self-compassion within them. Which means that you know it's harder for for instance to deal with some emotional suffering if you don't have that resource. They're allowed to be really fierce. The thing is, if it's fierce without tender, it may come out as aggressive or hostile or just striving all the time to, to achieve. Uh, women, on the other hand, you know, we're raised to be tender, but not fierce. And this can be a hard time for us to be comfortable with anger, for instance, or, um, you know, speaking up to meet our needs. So the book's written for women just because... Men need a different book. It's like tender self-compassion. How men can harness kindness to heal their wounds, <laughs> accept themselves as imperfect beings and learn to, to cry and heal, you know, express this, whatever it is, right? It's just the blocks are different, which is why the book's written for women. But
2: everyone needs both. That's really the bottom line. Mm, it's interesting when you were talking because I was picturing myself and when I'm talking to my teams, sometimes I'm very straightforward uh-huh. and I can automatically feel myself like want to apologize for... not saying things kinder, but I don't say it mean. It's just like very succinct and straightforward. So I think there's just this programming that we have inside of us that just makes us feel like we can't just be you know, even straightforward. Yeah, and it's not
0: even programming. It's also the backlash. I mean, why why doesn't America have the female president? Do you remember like Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren? They apologized for being too fierce, basically. Even though if you want to be president, you better be fierce and competent and active and powerful, you know, and people don't really like it when we're too fierce. And that's also one of the things self-compassion gives you is that, well, first of all, they find with the research, if women are fierce, but they also display some tenderness, it's like, it's okay. Like you, you really stand up for yourself and oh, by the way, how are your kids (laughs) helps to soften it. But it also means that, you know, if people don't like us as much, people will really like us when we say yes to everything and we're all helpful and we (laughs) deny our own needs, but you know, we have to make a choice. Is it about other people liking me or is it about me liking myself? You know, and in some ways, this is where you can fall back on self-compassion to say, you know, even if people like me a little bit less for saying no, I need to draw this boundary because it's really I need to care for myself. And so it gives you the power to free yourself from some of this gender role socialization and for and for men, too. Right. So we're really all harmed by these restrictions that keep us from being healthy and well.
2: (sighs) And it seems so hard to change things. <laughs> like,
0: Well, yeah, it is hard. So you kind of just work on yourself day by day. Um, but but we also have to try to change things, right? right? If we can just like sit on our cushion and be all healthy and well and compassionate and mindful while the world's going to hell in a handbasket, you know, that we need to like speak up, social justice movements, global warming, you know, all there's a lot of stuff that needs attending to. And that's also the fierce side of self-compassion. The side that says, hey, It's not just about me, it's about our world. And I need to take action to make the world a more just, healthy place if I want to be healthier as well.
2: We have learned so much from you today and I have so enjoyed this interview. I wanted you to leave our listeners with one more encouragement about why self-compassion is incredibly important. And if they're really not used to this topic, how they can start using it today.
0: Right. Well, so just
2: a really useful
0: metaphor is there's actually a lot of research on combat veterans and self-compassion. And what we found is that combat veterans who you know who've seen a lot of trauma in, in the war, um, those who are more self-compassionate, they're less likely to develop post-traumatic stress syndrome, they function better, they're less likely to abuse alcohol or you know, contemplate suicide, which sadly some do because they're so traumatized. And if you think about that as a metaphor, and there's also research on the pandemic, which is a different type of battle we've been going through, right? When you go into battle, who's going to make you stronger? If the voice inside your head is an ally saying, I'm here for you. I got your back. You know, I'm I'm fighting alongside you, so to speak, with you, helping you. Or if the voice inside your head is an enemy, you know, shaming you, cutting you down, criticizing yourself all the time, you know, trying to trip you up. Clearly... When you go into battle, you're going to do better if you're an ally as opposed to an enemy. And so really, this is what self-compassion is. It's being an ally, a friend, a source of a strength and support for yourself. And so that's actually related to um, a very easy way to practice self-compassion. Very simple. Just start to notice what you say to yourself. You know, when you're struggling or things are difficult, or maybe you make a mistake or, you know, you look in the mirror, you don't like what you see. And just ask yourself really simply, would I say this to someone I really cared about, like a good friend or maybe my child? And if the answer is no, right, you can just say, well, what would I say to someone I cared about? And you can use that as the template for how to speak to yourself. It's actually not rocket science. We already know how to do it. We just have to give ourselves permission to start to treat ourselves more compassionately. And, and it will feel a little weird at first. I'm, I'm not going to lie. It feels a little awkward. But it's only because we're so used to calling ourselves names, which should be awkward, but for whatever reason, it's not. We spend our whole life doing it. When you start to build a new habit, you know, the brain is plastic. You start to. You know, when you notice you're suffering, even if you're suffering from your own self-criticism, you start speaking to yourself like a warm, supportive friend. Wow, that's really hard. What can I do to help? You know, I'm so sorry. Um, I care for you, right? Or again, that encouraging. How can I support you? How can I help strengthen you? Um, and it, and it's, it's like it's like a superpower we have in our own back pocket. We don't even know it's there, but we just have to pull it out of our back pocket.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're all worthy of that kind. Way of speaking to ourselves, just like we would talk to a friend. Like, we're all worthy of that. Kristen, this has been such a pleasure. So please let everyone know where they can find some more of you.
0: Uh, well, the easiest way is uh, if you go to my website, selfcompassion.org, you can spell it any way. I got in early, so all the algorithms lead to me. <laughs> <laughs> and on my website, um, you know, you can find links to my social media. You can sign up for my newsletter. I have a ton of um, guided practices. You can take the self-compassion scale I developed. You can test your own level of self-compassion. I have research articles, I've um, got yeah, a ton of resources on this website, including a link to the nonprofit I co-founded, the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion, where you can actually get training, online training in self-compassion. So, you know, all the resources are there. You just have to choose to try to make this a change in your life in terms of how you relate to yourself. and And it will change
1: your life. I can guarantee you that. And every single woman listening will learn a little bit differently. So maybe you do want to go to her Instagram or on the website. Maybe you want to go through that training, but highly, highly recommend checking out Kristen Neff's information. It'll change your life. And again, we are all worthy of this type of self-compassion. So thank you again so much, Kristen, for being on. You're such a light in this world. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure.